0: DevOps practices are shared via community, and community manifests at conferences. Unfortunately, conferences are not possible right now due to COVID-19. The world has turned to virtual conferences. All Day DevOps is a 24-hour conference sharing learnings and software strategies around DevOps, and it starts November 12th. Derek Weeks and Mark Miller are organizers of the conference, and they join the show to talk about modern DevOps. They both work at Sonatype, which is also a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and I hope you enjoy today's show about the all-day DevOps conference and DevOps in general. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invite. DevOps has been a thing for the better part of a decade. What has changed in the DevOps world in the last couple of years?
1: It's a really good question to start off with. I think a lot has changed in the last couple of years. Certainly, it depends how, how many years you go back, but you know certainly when I started in the DevOps community six or seven years ago now, there was a lot of talk about it. It was more of a buzzword. It was a practice that was adopted by a select few organizations, and I really think that it's transformed into something that is more of a common practice, both you know, small companies and very, very large enterprises are working their way through adoption of DevOps practices. Now, the largest enterprises aren't all completely there, but they are certainly investing heavily in getting themselves there. And then I think there's there's also some things like DevSecOps and site reliability engineering that are surfacing themselves more as newer topics in the DevOps community.
2: The other thing that's happened too, Derek, that you and I have noticed, I think, is that Initially, DevOps started out conceptually as if you use these specific tools, you will become a DevOps company. And then it came around that really cultural transformation was the critical starting point for DevOps to actually be implemented and useful within a company. The idea that you have to have buy-in from the company in order to make this work, that's relatively recent within the last two or three years.
0: When we talk about the tooling or the supply chain of things in the DevOps lifecycle, there's two main categories, I would argue. There's cloud technologies, and then there's open source technologies. And then there's obviously open source technologies that get adopted by cloud providers and hosted by cloud providers. What does the supply chain look like for those two different categories of software?
1: I think within the open source side in particular, I think there are a lot of options out there that are available to people. I think the good news of that is that more development organizations can adopt various open source projects to begin to test them, play with them, deploy them into their environment, see if these things work, look at the kind of functionality that's provided, use the the ability to have access to these open source tools to realize where the gaps are, what they don't do, and probably lead them to the path of why they're going to update to the paid version of a number of these, especially if they're they're in the enterprise. On the cloud side, I think the biggest benefit that the cloud side has seen, I mean, we all knew the cloud side, cloud native side was coming. I think with COVID-19 out there, a lot of organizations said, I know we were dabbling in investment wise in the cloud side of uh, our infrastructure or tooling pipeline sets and I think that we need to get you know we need to go from dabbling to actually fully investing in in cloud infrastructure. I was just talking to a major bank in Australia yesterday and they said, you know, by the end of 2020 they're going to be about 70% in the cloud in terms of their pipelines and, and tooling. And by the end of 2021, they will be 100% there, but that was accelerated as a result of COVID.
0: And what about security when it comes to these different categories of software? How does security apply to open source and cloud technologies, respectively?
1: You know, it's interesting how much security has come into play in the past few years. And, and this is really, you know, if I look back three or four years in, in the DevOps community, security was an interest point, but I don't think many people knew how to do it. And I also don't think that the tooling was there that was more DevOps native tooling, if you will, that made it easy for developers to use security tools. Security was still this organization that you threw things over the wall to. They would, you know, application security or infosec, Would test applications or they were responsible for testing or uh, validating that the infrastructure was secure. And and I really think, and I've seen in the last three years, maybe stretching back to four years, that new tooling has uh, come on the market that has made it easier for developers to look at security of open source packages for one, security of containers that they're using for another, security is related to infrastructure as code that development teams may be building. This information is surfacing to developers inside developer tools and that in order to make that happen, it doesn't necessarily need to involve the security team or the security purchasing budget to do that. So, you know, it's not uncommon for a developer to say my latest pull request has a security issue that has been identified with it. I need to go in and and fix that. And they're either getting, you know, notices in in Git or Jira or from Jenkins builds or other things like that. Mark?
2: Yeah, Derek, I mean, you bring up a good point. A lot of the security nowadays is being pushed down to the developer level. When before it was a whole different silo that was going on. Not only is it being pushed down to the developer, it's actually being pushed into the planning phase. So that with when people are selecting tools, when they're selecting solutions, they're looking to see if the security is built in there. I think that in itself is a major transition. Uh, Derek and I, you and I have also seen that even in development environments like GitHub, that GitHub will have security built into the process of using the platform, whether it's our tool or somebody else's tool, that you can actually make sure
1: that your product is secure within the GitHub environment. That's pretty fantastic. But, you know, I'll just add one more thing. A lot of us, you know, in the developer and DevOps community you look at security from a, you know, do we have the, the capability to do security analysis on any code or infrastructure that we're building. But the the real reason that you invest in security practices at all, practices, tooling, culture, what have you, is that you have adversaries out there. And I think what the development community has recognized is just as DevOps and developers have moved toward more automation, so have the adversary communities and the timing between a Vulnerability being announced and the adversaries finding their way into successfully breach applications and infrastructure is three days or less. You know, we saw that just go back to May of this year. We saw a SaltStack vulnerability announced on Wednesday afternoon, and I, I saw 18 breaches mentioned in GitHub channels by Saturday morning. So the adversaries are very quick to respond to new vulnerabilities out there. And I think the automation and kind of investments to be more developer-centric are helping developers be more responsive to very responsive adversaries out there.
2: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating when you think about the adversary angle here because the adversaries know all of the developer tools. Inside out, they know what you're using to create your stuff. They know what the security process is within those tools. So that if you think about the flip side, do you know what tools your adversary is using? And that's where the game changes right there. As you say, Derek, I mean, you noticed that I think three or four years ago when you were doing the software supply chain report, you started noticing that time to remediation has to shrink exponentially in order to stay ahead of this.
1: Yeah. Used to take 45 days for an adversary to take advantage of a new vulnerability, and now it's, you know three days or less. And sometimes it instantly because the adversaries are creating the vulnerabilities and code that developers are using. But that's...
2: Well, it's before zero day. <laughs> you know, they're finding it and attacking it before anybody even knows. yep, it's, yep. It's
0: So why is this of concern to you guys? Maybe you could say a bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, so in the realm of Developer interest in cybersecurity, developer interest in application or infrastructure security, this you know ties a lot to the, the work that we do every day at Sonatype. You know, Sonatype has been around for well over a decade now, uh, helping developers create better code uh, and manage their code better in terms of open source packages and binaries that developers are using every day. Developers are using more and more of those we help the developers store those packages or manage those packages locally in things like the Sonotype Nexus repository. But it it became very apparent to us eight years ago or so that developers just didn't want to have a better way to manage, well, what packages are we using and can we use those consistently across an organization? But we need to know about the quality of these things, because if you look at the Software supply chain report that I publish each year. Depending on the development language, anywhere between ten and forty percent of open source packages that developers would use, whether they're JavaScript, Java, Ruby, Rust, Go packages, what what have you, those have known vulnerabilities in them. So then it becomes, if we can use all of these open source components, are we using the best ones and the most quality ones, and what are the what are the better practices around this? So. Being able to surface that information for developers to help them make better decisions is part and parcel of our our business today. So if you're a developer and you download a Maven package from Maven Central and we tell you in your IDE or in your pull request or in your Jenkins build, hey, that has a security vulnerability, we want to help you, one, learn that very quickly, We want to point you to there's a newer, safer version of that available that doesn't have a vulnerability. And by the way, we also want to point you to that if you upgrade to that newer, later version without the vulnerability, there's also a chance of fewer breaking changes on this version versus that version that you can upgrade to. So we're trying to enable developers to innovate faster with the free code that's available out on the internet for them in order to be more productive. Developers shouldn't have to spend their time going off and saying, I want to use this jQuery package. Uh, Let me go and research it for the next couple of hours to see if it has a vulnerability or a license risk or something like that. You just want to use the package, know it's safe, and move on with your day and not have to go through your own individual research or uh, throw it over the wall to a security team and wait three weeks for a response from them that it's okay to use.
2: The other thing, Derek, that you and I have been really working on hard for the last five or six years is the idea of helping the community in general through our participation as speakers in conferences, throwing our own conferences. Now, one of the key pieces that Tomita believes in is this idea of free education to anybody, not just a select few. You and I, you know, five years ago started this concept of let's throw a global online conference for the exact reason that we're talking about here, that the community needs the education in order to be safe and remain safe. And we want to be a central part of that message to people. I think it's critical to what we do. And that it is one of the things I'm most proud of that we have here as a legacy, that we're leaving as a legacy, that we're helping educate the DevOps community and the DevSecOps
1: communities.
0: Yep. Can you say a bit more about the community involvement that you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So as Mark said, five years ago, we were spending a lot of time. We still spend a good amount of time participating in DevOps and developer conferences as speakers, as well as organizers in some cases. And, yeah, you know, we, we'd recognize Mark and I would show up to an event. You meet, you know, someone from, say, Bank of America or eBay or PayPal or Coca-Cola. And you say, you know, hey, it's great that you're here. I see there are two of you here from this company. How many people do you have in your DevOps practice? Right. And they say, oh, we have like 600 people. And we knew that we were getting this great experience from the, the community and people we were learning from that were speaking at these conferences, people we were talking to in the hallway. And, and we said, you know, there's enough interest in this DevOps space that I think we could pull a conference together online and really make it available to anyone and everyone in these organizations. And I bet a thousand people would show up to this. And five years ago, a thousand people at a conference, especially you know wh- whether it was physical or online, no one was doing online conferences back then. Would be huge. The, I think the biggest DevOps conference at the time was about 600 people. So we pulled this conference together with some friends in the the community from different companies. We put it online. We made it free. We had I think almost 60 speakers that first year, and 13,000 people showed up to that because they wanted to hear what the devops community had to say and and we structured it in a way that learning was a priority for everyone and we made the access uh, available to anyone that had internet access of course it was free to attend and the other thing that was really important to us from day 1 was we said no vendor pitches because we didn't want to hear out you know end up and hear puppet and chef and docker and everyone else just come in and present whatever their technology or tool was. We just wanted practitioners and thought leaders to speak about here's what's happening in the community, is that free learning opportunity. And since that first year, we, we've continued to run it online. We now run it 24 hours. And we have between 30 and 40,000 people every year participate in the, the conference.
2: You know, one of the things that's part of this, Jeff, that's critical to the success because we have to realize that physical conferences are geolocated. I mean, I'm stating the obvious here. But what that means is that you're limited to the audience that can actually hear the message directly from the speakers, not through recordings, not through webinars or anything like that, but actually almost one-on-one through live presentations. So that if I am in an outlying area that's nowhere near a center of technology, By providing a solution like this, anyone in the world, no matter their location, can participate. And Derek, I think that's the thing that we discovered that first year, that there was an audience that was outside what had been perceived as the core audience, that wanted the education, that wanted the knowledge, but nobody was providing it.
1: Yeah. And I think that the other thing, so we we didn't mention, it's called All Day DevOps. So for those of you listening that are like, what's this conference? All Day DevOps is the name of it. But I think the other thing that was key that we learned in the first year that was not a given at all was that people said, if you're going to do an online conference, it's going to be boring. It's just going to be like a long webinar. I, I don't have a hallway track. And we set up Slack from day one as our hallway track and, and the opportunity to ask speakers questions, interact with everyone participating in the conference. And it was incredibly active. And you know, last year, I think we had 100,000 conversations in Slack during the 24 hours of the conference. So you just see people trading information, trading code, pointing to GitHub repos. Here's where you can get that code, asking questions of experts in the industry that they wouldn't normally have access to because that person is an expert, but they live in the Netherlands and the person asking them is in Malaysia. And those two would have never ended up at the the same conference before. We have, I think we have like 133 countries participating in the conference this year coming up on November 12th.
2: Yeah, I, I want to poke your memory a little bit, Derek, here, because this is one of my favorite visions of that first year when we implemented Slack. Katie Hiller uh, had just come on board and was working with her. Remember, there's only six or eight of us that first year we gathered in Tysons and got together. Katie just pulled up a chair into a corner and got on Slack and didn't move for 17 hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was it was. Fantastic to watch and you could see that there was something there. Engagement was happening, not with us as the organizers, but peer to peer within Slack. And I'm seeing that continually now when I go into the all the Aldi DevOps Slack channel now, the, the Slack environment. Daily, people are in the different rooms talking to each other. And as you said, there's absolutely no way they could have met each other other than that type of environment.
0: Yeah. So what kinds of conversations manifest at a DevOps conference?
1: Certain things that that manifest through through these conversations are... And you know, I I remember several of these conversations, but there's a, a guy, a good friend of ours now, Larry Maturoni, who's at Comcast. And he's giving a presentation to say, you know, this is how people adopt DevOps within my organization. And I have a scorecard that I use for each of the nine or 10 business units that I work with and coach on DevSecOps. And people are like, wow, a scorecard for DevOps. I want to get a hold of that. Larry, how do I get a hold of that? And he's either got a blog, a GitHub page, or, you know, whatever to give people access to that kind of scorecard. So here's a learning exchange that's happening. Someone like Shannon Leitz, who was one of, you know, the very original six, seven people that we had organizing this concept of all day DevOps for the community. She heads DevSecOps at Intuit and she's online. She's, you know moderating the DevSecOps track that we have in the conference. And she's hearing people present, this is what I've done in my organization. This is the tooling that that I use. These are the scripts that I use. This is what I found out about the adversaries and what they're doing. And she's saying, can you get me that information? Can you share that information to me? Can you come and consult with me and my organization on that? and we, we were joking just the other day on Twitter back and forth because the night before this, she we were walking uh, in the neighborhood around uh, the, the building where we were hosting the conference and she stepped in a hole and either broke her foot or nearly broke her foot. And it was swollen like twice the size that it should have been. But she was sitting in this chair moderating this track for like 16 hours that day. And she said, I don't want to get up from this chair, not only do I have a broken foot, I don't really wanna move, but I'm engaged so much with meeting new people in the community that I wouldn't have met and getting this information that my organization needs to move its practice forward. This person has a specific technique that I'm not using in my organization, I need to adopt, and now I know who this expert is. And it was that Slack conversation that was happening. It wasn't Shannon showing up and just listening. She was able to engage back and forth with those people, and I think you see that all the time. And you know, the other thing that arises that's really neat. And this just happened yesterday, so this is you know pre-conference. But we have a leaderboard on our site. If you have 20 people register uh, for your company, we put your company name on the board. How many people have registered? Well, PepsiCo has like 300 people registered and Dr. Pepper Keurig has about 300 people registered. So they're seeing each other on this leaderboard saying we have x100 people registered and we want to be above the other one in this, you know, the internal cola wars that they have within their industry. But Leon said, you know, I want to meet Leon at, at Dr. Pepper said, "Can you introduce me to the person at PepsiCo, Kathy?" who's leading their effort to get their organization involved in the conference where they're bringing hundreds of people. How do you work within an organization to educate that many people? How do you drive it internally? How do you get executive support? And he said, hey, can you connect me with this other person in the all day DevOps community because I wanna learn that aspect of change management or cultural shift in an organization. So those kinds of exchanges are happening in the community just organically as we build it and, and connect people.
2: If you extend in that idea too, Derek, when you think about it, with the 180 sessions we're going to have this year and in the previous years, you know, comparable in the mid hundreds, people watching those sessions are literally sitting there comparing themselves and their maturity level of their teams against the presenters. So that in essence, within a 24 hour period, you can get a broad spectrum of where the industry is, what companies are at your level, who's working more efficiently than you are, and what are they doing to work more efficiently? It's almost like a live version of the unicorn project playing out in 24 hours. And I think that's something you and I don't talk about a lot, but I think it's actually a critical piece of the puzzle when we're thinking about why has this conference, of all conferences, been accepted so well? It's because of the disparity of the presenters so that you can place yourself and your team at the center of the story and compare you with other people in the industry.
1: Yeah and you know, as an example, when PepsiCo or when Dr. Pepper reached out to PepsiCo this morning, the first part of the note I saw on the email exchange was, I know we're competitors, but in this case, I think we can work together because we're not sharing like competitive go to market kind of information. It's just here, we're development teams. How do we work? How do we improve? And that's what's cool about the DevOps and developer community especially in the DevOps community. It's the sharing, the open sharing of information between organizations that are even competitors. So target sharing information with Walmart on, here's how we're deploying and operating Kubernetes within our infrastructure, whether it's Pepsi and Coca-Cola talking about how they're managing security as part of a DevOps pipeline. Right, those yeah. kind of conversations are are free to be had for the most part. There aren't these kind of industry competitive blockers set up.
2: When you think about FinTech in general, financial services, think about who's been with us to talk. Colin Wynn when he was at the Federal Reserve Bank. You're talking about Slajina and Bill from TD Bank. You've got Chitro Alonga at Fannie Mae who has a fantastic story. You're getting industry people where you think it's a complete lockdown, but they're willing to talk about the processes that they're using. Sure. That, that's fantastic.
0: Sonatype, a continuous integration product for for finding security flaws. How has that, you know, being from that vantage point, exposed you to some of the problems and the solutions that are needed by DevOps teams that you're that you're talking to. Yeah,
1: so it's a, it's a good point. So from where we sit at Sonatype, when you know I think about the kind of technology that, that we provide, when I think about DevOps practices, and a lot of what we're talking to organizations about is how you build security into a DevOps pipeline. What opportunities do, do you have for doing that? One is that There's kind of this legacy view of security as a bolt-on element at the end of a development pipeline. I think what DevOps has introduced, and this was really a kind of calling of the DevOps community years ago, was shifting left, shifting practices left so that developers could have more control and more insight over what was happening. So it's how do you bake in security as early as possible into the pipeline? One is, you know, we've been a developer tools company from the get-go. We didn't start as a security tools company. And when you're a developer tool uh, provider from from the get-go, you realize developers just want to, you know, create awesome code and high quality code as well. And as part of accelerating innovation in the, the DevOps realm or just modern development, every developer is using as much open source as they can because they don't wanna write this code from scratch. So we've seen, you know, the, one, the consumption of open source uh, packages increase at astounding rates. So uh, Maven Central, which we run at, uh, at Sonatype as well, when I joined seven years ago, we had seen 13 billion downloads from Maven Central. This year we're expected to see nearly 300 billion download requests from Maven Central npm the npm repository you know they were unknown 6 years ago in terms of packages they will do 1.2 trillion downloads of npm packages this year so an amazing amount of of open source being used but developers want to know what the quality of that is they want to bake it that that quality and security information in early in the development lifecycle, and they don't want security to do that. So that's one part of the the vantage point that we have of seeing what is it that developers want to do? They want security information, but they want fast feedback loops. That the traditional bolt-on kind of security was, I can send my code or these open source packages for review by security teams before I embed them into the application that I'm building but that's a three to five week turnaround. And I think what DevOps and DevSecOps is providing through that shift left practice, but also just understanding, give me very, very fast feedback loops is, can I download an open source package and understand whether that's good or not at the moment I download it? If it's bad, block it, give me feedback, You know, immediately it's bad, block me from using it, show me what the good versions are, allow me to use those and let me get on my way. So you're taking feedback loops of three to five weeks and making them literally seconds or real-time decisions on the best quality components that that can be made or that can be selected. And then the the other thing that's vitally important as we talked about earlier was knowing that security is important from an adversary standpoint if I've used a certain open source package and I deployed that into my production applications and there is a vulnerability announced today on that package and there's a safe version that's available, I need a feedback loop that instantly tells me as a security team, as an operations team, you've got a vulnerable package in, in your uh, in, uh, production ops and I need to get feedback to a developer quickly on how to, how to prioritize and fix that or upgrade that package and then move it out into production and do so where the feedback loops are so tight and the selection process for the new package is so fast and hopefully your DevOps practice is fast as well where you might be able to identify that vulnerable component in production get the application back in development, upgrade that package and get it out into production. In some of the best organizations, that's a two-day process right now. Some might be faster, but two days is pretty good. And if you look at adversaries on average, attacking in about three days, you're still staying ahead of the adversaries at at that standpoint in terms of how quickly you can move. If you imagine where it was before, DevOps, you know that feedback loop for some organizations, is, it's still, and we've surveyed them earlier this year, the average organization now takes a week to identify vulnerabilities in production applications. They take another week to remediate those. And when adversaries are moving in three days, you know, you are 11 days behind your adversaries, and adversaries can do a lot in 11 days in a successful breach scenario.
0: Who is typically working with Sonatype? Is it a secure, dedicated security engineer or is it a dedicated DevOps engineer? Is it just some software engineer? Does title vary from company to company?
1: Generally, I think it it can be all of the above, but usually what we see is a a, um, DevOps manager, developer, team lead, or head of software development for an organization. The individual developers in these organizations use the tools. They can use our free developer tools that, that we have to play with or get information about the quality of open source packages that, that they're consuming. But you know, we're, we're still at a point in the industry where development is, you know in terms of who's making the majority of the decisions, development is making the majority of the decisions for how do we build better quality code faster, how do we build more secure code faster? But uh, security is still an influencer in these organizations, in the enterprises that, that we work with. Sometimes it's the security team saying, I know we need to build security into the DevOps practice and I'm the security expert at this organization and I want to find a better way to work with developers. And when I come to them and say, I can do static analysis, you know, runs on the applications that you're building. And these static analysis scans are taking five hours to complete and give feedback that have a lot of false positives, you know, for security or developer teams to, to work through, they're seen as an inefficient partner in this kind of security and development model, where security teams can look at solutions like Sonotypes that are providing instant feedback to developers on the quality and security of component that they're using. Then you're, you can be seen more as a trusted advisor in these kinds of uh, collaboration between development and security. Uh, so I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was speaking with the chief information security officer for a very large software company in San Francisco. And he said, I, I, you know, I, in order to work with development, I have a five-minute rule for any solutions that I'm looking at. If anyone comes in here to pitch me a tool and they're like, I can run a scan of your applications or whatever and tell you any vulnerabilities in this for developers to be aware of, If that tool couldn't give feedback to a user or the developer in this case, within five minutes, he wouldn't even let them in the door. He's like, if you have a scan that takes an hour, I have developers that have builds that are taking seconds to minutes, right? They're trying to deploy new code changes multiple times a day. I can't be adding an hour into this build process. So if you've got a solution that comes in under that five-minute benchmark that he had just set, then it allows me to better collaborate with the development team, where I can go in and say, "Hey, I have something new, I have something cool, I have something that's going to move move us forward and make us more secure." But I'm not going to come in as something that looks like a tax, a one-hour, two or three-hour tax with lots of false positive noise, you know, for development teams. So I think that's where they you know, when we look at kind of who do we work with and who, who do we work best with, it's that security team that wants to be more forward and developer friendly, as well as the developer teams that say, I just want the information surfaced in my own dev tools so developers can make their own decisions and move on.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the all day DevOps conference you guys have coming up. What kinds of people who are listening right now should be interested in that conference?
2: that's a pretty easy one right Derek I mean what we've got is such a a broad spectrum I mean let's start uh, Jeff with the keynotes even what we've done is we've opened it up this year to uh, ask me anything sessions from the top people in the industry like we have Casey Rosenthal and Nora Jones doing an ask me anything chaos engineering session you know, Ben Sluss and Jennifer Pettoff from Google doing, ask me anything about SRE or uh, Sasha Laboree from CloudBees talking about CICD. The ability for people to actually talk to these people one-on-one and ask questions is what's going to drive people here. And the people that want to look at the different aspects of the industry and get firsthand contact with the people that are driving it.
1: Derek? You know, in terms of kind of the mix of people that are attending, we have about 60, 65% are individual contributors, developers, DevOps engineers, or, you know, the kind of the most common titles that that show up uh, to the conference. We also have a strong showing of, of managers in the conference track overall, whether it's a development manager to you know, I think Mark and I were looking the other day, we have 148 CIOs that had registered for the conference already. Um, so just on that title alone, there's hundreds of other C-level or VP-level folks that have signed up for the conference. And I think it's a reflection of the tracks that, that we have at the conference. So there is a CICD track, there's a modern infrastructure modern infrastructure and cloud track, a DevSecOps track, CI/CD. CICD, uh, site reliability engineering, we have DevOps and government, and then we have the cultural transformation track. And I, I think for a lot of managers out there, that cultural transformation track is the big thing, like how do I influence change in my organization, whether I'm a small, nimble, you know, 20-person organization, I wanna hear from peers in, in the industry on that, or whether I'm a 40,000-person large enterprise, that's a hundred years old. And I want to hear from people like that uh, that are presenting that, that have that experience. So I think the the breadth of tracks that, that we have makes the conference available and interesting to a wide uh, swath of, of folks out there. But like I said, you know, most of it is uh, developers and DevOps engineers at the individual contributor level, but we do get, you know, quite a lot of management participation as well. And, and I think that's really where, you know, the feedback channels like Slack are really important for people to make those industry connections and you know have a place to keep those connections after the conference. So, you know, if you were talking to Ben Trainer Sloss from Google or Casey Rosenthal from Verica during the conference and you wanted to communicate with them later, the Slack channel that you were talking to them with in during the conference. Is the same Slack channel you can talk to them in next month or next week or next year. It, it provides that connection point that, that people necessarily don't get if you just went to a webinar that pops up on your screen for an hour and then closes down or any of the other virtual conference sites. That, that, the consistency and persistence of the environment that we're setting up with all-day DevOps is really important that we didn't want to be a show up once a year kind of conference and then go away for another year. We wanted to create this active community of people talking with one another.
0: How do you guys expect to spend your time during the conference yourselves?
2: I'm going to be playing code names. <laughs> <laughs> we actually, part of the, uh, the conference game. Is, uh, is we are actually setting up code names games, tournaments during the breaks. But in between the code names, Derek and I will be moderating sessions, <laughs> keeping the, everything, everybody on their toes as far as it goes. Uh, we pretty much split between us the, uh, the keynote sessions as far as moderation goes. But in general, we're floating around answering questions from the logistics team and just making sure the whole thing is running properly.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you, you know and we've said it's a 24-hour conference. It starts at 3 a.m. Eastern time uh, each year that, that we do it. It ends at 3 a.m. Eastern time. And people are always like, do you guys stay up for 24 hours? And yes, we've stayed up every year for 24 hours. So it, in order to do that, uh, there are a couple of different things that we do. One it, you know, we have 180 speakers coming through in the six different tracks that, that we have for the conference. And at, all the sessions are a half hour apiece. When you're moderating those tracks, you're figuring out who's coming on next. What are they talking about? Do I know this person? You know, do I have any background? How, how do I introduce them? Then you're listening to them present, like, what are you talking about? Is that interesting? Did I learn something as a moderator? Can I share that back with the community? And then who's who's next up as the speaker. So you're constantly going through this this exercise of just being on top of what's going on and a half an hour session moves very quick. But at the same time, Mark and I have done this enough and produced, not only attended, but produced enough of the the conferences and especially the all day DevOps specific online ones that we're moderating and at the same time we're operating the, the conference or producing it. So when we see something's not right with the conference production, sound quality issues, what have you, we have a team in the background that we are always talking to in our private Slack channels to make sure everything goes right. And we're also, you know, we've we've met a lot of people, hundreds and hundreds of people through the community at the time. And, you know, on occasion, someone comes to me or Mark and they say, I know you guys are the, the guys that are leading this conference. And someone's harassing me in this this channel. And then you have to go off and kind of troubleshoot that. And we have a very simple policy for our conference in terms of participation that any bad behavior, I just go in and we have about six people on the team that can go in and we just eliminate that Slack account. When you have 30,000 people participating in a conference and everyone's being good, but there's one or two not not nice players uh, in the audience, it's easy to just go in and eliminate their Slack accounts and they're gone from the, the conference. And that makes it a safe experience for people to participate in conferences like this. And it's, it still astounds me, although I, you know, see it on Twitter and I see the remarks about certain people just don't know how to behave in large settings or, you know, can, definitely say the wrong thing to a woman participating at a, a conference and you know certain people have sent me screenshots of this is what this person says i'm not sure if i should have brought it up but i want to you know share it with you and i'm like my eyes are bugging out of my head saying i can't believe someone like this said this to anyone let alone at, at our conference but we do make a, a we have a team Focused on all the public channel communications that that we can see. We obviously can't see the the private ones, but making sure that people are behaving, doing what they're supposed to. No one's vendor pitching. You know, on occasion you get someone coming in like, save ten dollars on my service if you sign up in the next month. You know, for my free SaaS you know offering. Those people are those messages are deleted. Those people are blocked from the conference. We have a team looking at that kind of thing, but the. Harassment stuff usually done a little more in private if it's done, but we control that to make yeah, sure it's a right safe up. conference at scale.
2: Yeah, it does open up uh, the discussion too, Derek, on diversity and inclusion. You and I, from the beginning, have always, you know, stated to each other, it's not something that we need to shout from the rooftops. We just have to do it. Yeah, and the idea that if you look across the broad spectrum of speakers we've got diversity inclusion built into the conference, not on top of it, built into the conference. And it's something I'm most proud of.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, as we're winding down, do you guys have any predictions about the near future of DevOps?
2: Yeah, it's gonna go away. (laughs) (laughs) He's at near term. If you're doing software development properly, it's going to go back to what it was before DevOps. It's like when you talk to Patrick Dubois about DevOps and where it came from. If you talk to Patrick Dubois about it and the people like Dave Farley and Patrick and the people that started this whole idea, they were all doing it before. It just didn't have a name with it. The guys that were really moving forward, they just didn't have something you hang your hat on. As we move forward, if we're doing things properly the DevOps name itself, the DevSecOps name will disappear because it will just be part of the process of building software.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the company that innovates faster is going to win in the marketplace. And part of that innovation, you know, innovating faster is delivering better quality products to market or better quality services to market faster. And quality means not only is it really good code, not only are the features good, but you know, security definitely uh, plays a part in that. And I think there are a lot of organizations that are looking at. You know, I talk to very large banks all the time that have been around for sometimes hundreds of years, and they're looking at I'm if I don't move faster and innovate faster. And adopt the practices of some of my smaller, more nimble, newer digital, n- digitally native competitors. Uh, I'm going to lose out in this market. So we, it, it's transform or die kind of situations for for them. I think for the smaller companies, it just says this is a competitive differentiator for us. So I think those practices continue, but I think there's still a lot of room for newer tooling to come in to give better feedback loops, to have better observability of what's going on. I think tooling that, you know, we are building tools for continuous integration and continuous delivery, but I think the tooling needs to be built for continuous deployment and things like chaos engineering coming in to say, you know, if you build the highest quality code and can roll it out incredibly fast, what happens when things go wrong and you start to build all of this kind of resiliency into your environment, along with that observability, is going to be key. So I, I still think we have a long way to go there, but I don't think that, you know, the horse is being put back in the barn on this.
0: Okay, guys. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking.
1: Jeffrey, thank you very much for having us.
2: Yeah, Jeff, thanks.